God can talk to you pretty much however he wants, and he owes you no explanation. Today on The Word Preacher, we will be looking at Zacharias, John the Baptist, and of course, the coming of the Messiah. My name is Brett Jensen. I am the Word Preacher. Again, this is a not-for-profit podcast uh, that uh, focuses on the Come Follow Me curriculum. Uh, I hope that you're studying and looking at this with me. Uh, Today, our uh, assignment takes us into Luke 1 and Matthew 1, and there are some important things that we want to cover in each of these books. Uh, the first thing that, uh, that we want to touch on is about Zacharias, father of John the Baptist. Zacharias, a priest in the temple in Luke chapter 1, um, he uh, is visited by an angel. And even though he and his wife are very great in age and are unlikely to have children, similar to the Abraham experience, uh, is told by an angel that he his wife will conceive and have a son. Uh, let's read the verses. Luke chapter 1, and this starts in verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, quite an important announcement that Zacharias receives from the angel. And immediately, his uh, response, he's kind of, he's kind of afraid. Uh, in verse 12, it talks about how he was troubled and fear came upon him. And the angel had told him, you know, calm down. But obviously he still wasn't uh, entirely calm. His response uh, was, whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. So he states the obvious. The angel, uh, almost it's almost as though he's saying, really, that's how you're going to answer this? Uh, he says, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not be able to speak until the day that thou, that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. So like, really? Uh, it wasn't enough for an angel to come to you, and not just an angel, the angel Gabriel to come to you, and you want to know how you know that this is going to happen, how this is going to be true? Well, of course, he obliged. Uh, he gave him a sign. 
And I think this is an important lesson. God doesn't owe anyone an explanation. If he says that something is going to happen, uh, we should take his word for it. If he sends a prophet to declare something, frequently in the Old Testament, that was enough. This was an important part of the story that Jesus would later tell about the rich man and Lazarus, where uh, the rich man in heaven, or rather, not in heaven, in hell, uh, is speaking to Abraham, and he sees that, you know, Lazarus is doing much better, even though he was poor in life, and the rich man is now suffering. And he asks that Lazarus be sent so that his friends and family will know the truth. And Abraham responds, they have the prophets. Is that not enough? You know, they already have a witness. You don't get to pick and choose how God talks to you. He doesn't owe you an explanation. He's given plenty, and you should take his word for it. Jesus Christ, notably, when Peter came uh, in the instance of walking on water on the Sea of Galilee, and, uh, you know, Peter's, of course, troubled that he's sinking, and, and Jesus' response, Wherefore didst thou doubt? in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. Wherefore didst thou doubt? You don't need to do that. God will answer you in whatever way is best, and don't be picky about what form he chooses, because he's not wrong. That's a tough thing to swallow. Uh, it's not always the same, uh, even for the same person. It's frequently different for different people, and we'll look at that a little bit um as we continue looking at these chapters. Let's go ahead and move on. Uh, um, I think one of these other verses is notable in describing the mission of John the Baptist, as described by the angel Gabriel in uh, verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That wording may be similar, particularly for those of us who have just finished studying the Old Testament. The last two verses in Malachi essentially say the same thing. Before the great and dreadful day, he will send Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest he come and smite the earth with a curse. It's kind of interesting. There's a little bit of wordplay here in the name Elias. Um, it is the Greek form, and of course the New Testament, all translated from Greek texts. Uh, Elias is the Greek form of Elijah, the Hebrew version of that prophet who was in the reign of King Ahab and uh, called down fire from heaven famously, multiple occasions, and uh, just an incredible prophet. This was the one promised in Malachi, that he would come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. But also, Elias is a name that means messenger. He's a messenger, and Jesus refers to him as such. Even though his name is John, in uh, Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus describes that uh, John the Baptist is Elias, if you will receive him. 
that's verses 12 through 14. He talks about, you know, the prophets prophesying until John and describes that he is an Elias. He is a messenger. Um, and then also this connection here by the angel Gabriel that describes its, his role as similar to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. What does that mean? Frequently, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints look at this as temple work, as the binding, uh, the sealing power that can bind generations who have gone before us and make us uh, children of the covenant. Incredibly important and accurate, but also kind of ironic that he gives it to John the Baptist, one of John the Baptist's most famous teachings, we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but it's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, where he tells them, Think not, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So his responsibility might seem like it's to turn the hearts of parents and children to one another, but he teaches that it doesn't matter who your parents are. Almost. That's not exactly right. Um, that's a, 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 an interpretation of that. Really, this is worth thinking about. What does that mean, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children? I think that part of this, especially at this point, when the law of Moses was the will and current word of God uh, to all those who believed, the idea that among the Ten Commandments, there is one that says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land the Lord thy God shall give thee. I think that's really important. What does that mean to honor our father and mother? Um, it's It's more than just remembering them fondly. I think it's more than uh, than just telling good stories about them to our kids, although it can include that. It's more than contacting them regularly, although it probably should include that too. Uh, and, and living by their rules, respecting their roles, it, it should include that too. But uh, in the end, if a person's children do little more than live off of their inheritance, they don't accomplish more, they have not honored their parents. I think this idea is manifest in the parable that Jesus would later tell about the talents. that To one servant he gave five, to another servant two, and to another servant one, and he was only pleased with those that went and used it to become greater. And the servant who hid his talent, who buried it, he was furious at. You didn't do anything with what we gave you. And I think this is fundamental to understanding what his idea was, or what the idea behind turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. They don't want us just to live off of, you know, the conveniences that have arised in modern technology they want us to be worthy of something good. They want their progeny, their descendants, to be good. And that 
is exactly what John taught. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. When he arrives, certainly those who knew in old times would have been pleased had their children listened to Jesus. And I think that's important and applicable for us. Um, so the next section, the coming of the Messiah. Uh, this is uh, told in a couple of chapters. We have in, in Luke 1 and in Matthew 1 a few different details. One of them that Matthew starts with, uh, before we get into the Annunciation, Matthew uh, describes a genealogy of, of Jesus, essentially. Uh, it's not actually Jesus. It goes to Joseph. What's interesting is that there's also a genealogy in Luke chapter 3, the end of Luke chapter 3. He has a genealogy as well. And what's interesting is that they don't agree. And there are some people who look at this and say, well, they obviously both can't be true. Uh, therefore, uh, you know, some people reject these New Testament accounts entirely, um, which is kind of tragic. There are different reasons uh, that they've emphasized different things. And uh, truthfully, we don't know all of the reasons. Some people have su uh, suggested a personal um, genealogy, like through his mother even, uh, is told in the account in Luke that does not go through the king's. And that Joseph's lineage was emphasized by Matthew, establishing that, you know, Jesus, even though he was not the son of Matthew, would have, as the oldest son of his first wife, been in line for the king. And of course, Luke agrees with the kingly claim, um, the, the royal purpose in, in what Jesus is doing. When the angel comes to Mary, the angel Gabriel, if we look in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, uh, he's clear about what he's saying here. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He is meant to be a king. Uh, this is established more clearly in Matthew, but we shouldn't let a different genealogy in Luke say, Eh, well, maybe it's not right. One other thing is that there are errors in some of these family histories. Uh, one of them, notably, if we look in Luke's, in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 36, it gives like, because Luke's goes all the way back to Adam, and it doesn't match the Genesis account. Our Faxad, the son of Seth, had a son uh, named Salah. Uh, in Genesis 10. But in Luke's account, they throw in this other in-between person, Canaan. Well, that's probably wrong. It's probably wrong. The Genesis account is probably more correct. They go into further detail about who was brother of who and how the different families related. Uh, and so it looks like there's more care taken in that record. Should a mistake cause us to have issues? No, they were written down by people, people who are doing the best that they can. And there's still value in reading their words. 
the same as with a prophet, listening to the prophets in the Old Testament, who were also men doing the best that they could. I mean, even Elijah had moments where he thought that was the end, that he wasn't going to be able to do anything. Jezebel had won and was going to kill everyone. And it was on Mount Horeb that he learned, no, it was not over. Uh, he would be able to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, and uh, also the next king of Syria, and Jezebel would be handled. But, I mean, even prophets don't know all of the answers in the moment. If we follow them and take their word and do the best that we can, though, there's still value. We're still expected to do that. Um, the next point, the revelations that are given to Mary and Joseph. Um, Gabriel announces to Mary that uh, the Holy Ghost will come upon her, and therefore her son shall be called the Son of God. Um, and then also adds an explanation when she's confused how she's going to have a child uh, with no man involved. Uh, he explains, the angel Gabriel explains, that Elizabeth, her cousin, has also had a child, even though she's very old. And in verse 37 of Luke 1, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And I think that's an important element. This was important for, Ma uh, for Joseph to accept in the account in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, he finds out that his, his espoused wife, that Mary, uh, is, you know, going to have a child and he knows he's not the father. So he's going to, you know, just call it off break it off privily. Um, and then he has a dream. This isn't the same exact way that Mary received a revelation or that Zacharias did, uh, but he has a dream. And in this dream, he is visited by an angel who informs him that he should still get married to Mary. He should take care of her. And that she has not broken any of her commitments or covenants. She is fulfilling a prophecy that says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So they get married, and, uh, and she has a son. They call him Jesus. I think this is an important thing that we should think about, how revelation comes. Just because some person has had a dream, uh, and another person has an angelic visitation, and others might look, such as the disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke, have a, a realization that comes, did not our hearts burn within us as he expounded the scriptures? There are different ways that God talks to us. He doesn't owe us any explanation. He chooses a way. And it's up for us to be receptive to it, to be looking, to seek. And Jesus himself promised that those who seek shall find, those who ask shall receive, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I think it's ultimately important that all of this revelation that we're discussing, it comes from and it leads to 
the same place, which is God. How important it is that we, as we study these scriptures in the New Testament, as we follow the, the prophet and look at this Come Follow Me curriculum, that we are looking for our own revelation. May it be so with us. Uh, I appreciate everyone uh, listening to the Word Preacher podcast. Uh, remember to uh, keep up with the curriculum. We will be here again next week and fight on. <laughs>